Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. More importantly, the skills that you need to acquire to be in this world that's shifting so dramatically I talked to them about, you know, remember Dora the Explorer, you go through life, you put stuff in your backpack, you don't know if you need it later. And that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing. Take a speech course, take mm -hmm. a, a body use course. I mean, I'm not regretting the fact I was in the pageant world because I think it's helpful for being on stage. I, I was a DJ for a radio station. I, I auditioned because I didn't have a job yet and I could pronounce Bucks the Huda. You know I mean? <laughs> that's the only reason I got the <laughs> nah. So I just, I keep encouraging people in all fields, but especially in the arts to find those skills because Arts administration is also a career, you know, um, mm -hmm. but I would also talk about music. The fact that music has been kind of ripped out of schools is a problem, even in Texas, for how much schools mm -hmm. have dropped their bands and orchestra programs. And what's really difficult for big orchestras um, and, and big things like opera orchestra and alley, the, our alley theater here, too, is that they get tasked with replacing music education and they're supposed to be a performance group. So they bus kids in to hear what they do. There's no relationship created there. So it's even more of an elitist creation, which they don't mean to do. So my point is that, that music education in schools is a topic to talk about, even as a performer. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alisa, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. So it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you because um, your publicist wrote in and they told me a little bit about what you do. And then I was pleasantly surprised to find that you were an oboe player, um, had been to Juilliard. And, and I've always been fascinated by people who play the oboe because of you know the story I was just sharing with you before we hit yeah. record here about the seventh grade band director who would ask everybody what their grades were when they wanted to switch to the oboe. Uh, <laughs> so on that note, uh, I want to start with a question that I know the answer to, but I'm very curious about it. And that is, <clears throat> where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? <laughs> My life. Ooh, how long do you have? Um, no, I, I grew up in a very small town in East Texas, and my dad's a band director still. My mom was the choir director. I'm an only child, so I had mom second period, dad third period um, through high school. But I um, played the oboe to do something different, and it was really a fabulous band. We had, you know, quite a couple hundred in the band, even though this high school was really tiny. And, um, it, you know, all state Texas, there's nothing like it as far as the pedagogy and learning the basics and learning how to sell at music and strive for something. Mm -hmm. 
So parents as band directors and, and music teachers, um, was this something that they instilled in you and in, insisted on? Or were they kind of like, it, like, let's say that you said, you know what, I'm not going to do either. Uh, although I know that's almost impossible to do in Texas because <laughs> mandatory music is mandatory, at least for some period of the time you're in school. Uh, like, What kinds of career, career pieces of career advice did they give you, both being teachers? Oh, yeah, no, they... They did not expect me to do music. And in fact, I intended not to. I was enrolled at UT for physics, actually. And at the very last second, my oboe teacher wanted me to not stop playing and got me into SMU. I mean, Julia, like July, right before school started, it was a crazy shift. But um, no, they were very, just whatever my explorations were, I was fairly hyper. I mean, they kept trying to tell me to do less stuff. <laughs> yeah, I kept doing more. Um, just all the different possibilities and explorations. My dad was into sci-fi. I was into fantasy, sci-fi, more fantasy. And um, just, I think all the, the curiosity of life, they've both been that way through all realms, not just in music. Um, but I do think that laying the groundwork of studying an instrument and, and getting good at that is, it lays the groundwork for so many other things that are possible. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh- you know, so you mentioned you grew up in a, a small uh, East Texas town, and you know the, the moment I hear small Texas town, my, my mind goes immediately to Friday Night Lights, and I, you know, I, I love that show because I think it's an incredibly accurate depiction of life in a small Texas town, and I can say that only because I spent you know a significant amount of my own childhood in one, and, and so I wonder what it's like to grow up in a place like that, uh, you know. And, and what are the, the stereotypes that you think that those of us who uh, don't ever experience that think about are, are wrong and, and which ones are right? Well, I mean, definitely every Friday literally was spent. Um, I guess that's not the right use of the word literally, but we were physically <laughs> spending every Friday night at the at the football stadium. And funny enough, for the first 10 years, we lived in this small town van. We lived next door to the football stadium. So growing up in my dad's band hall, my mom's choir place, taking piano for my mom, you know, music was a big part of it. But music not only supplements the football team, but the football team also gives everybody a reason to have a band program. So it's pretty intertwined there in some ways. Um, I will say in some of the private schools now I'm in Houston don't have a a really strong music programs. And I I would say it's because there's not the football to drive that kind of overarching need for music to (laughs) celebrate the things that are, you know, pulling us together. And Mm -hmm. I definitely think, you know, there's the whole rah-rah part of it and the huge spirit of being in the same place at the same time as shared space. And and I've not really thought about that before, but the idea of shared space with all sorts of people is what drives what I've created. And so I'm actually glad you brought that up. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, But yeah, every Friday night right there (laughs) and the marching competitions and the the precision in that and just the striving, I think, is something that is vital. Um, but you're right. Friday Night Lights, it's all I don't see that any of it's false. It's all true. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it is. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, and I grew up in College Station and that's probably yeah. nowhere as near as like hardcore as many of the small, you know, real small Texas towns like Odessa and, and places like that. And I, I remember even, you know, I, I remember my first real experience with a truly small Texas town, a place called Grossbeck, Texas. And I remember going there and we were stunned by how nice the facilities were like, how does a small town like this have AstroTurf and like this multi-million dollar stadium? And somebody looked at us and said oil. And we're like, ah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
It was so, funny though, because my dad is such a powerful band director too. I mean, he had a, a repair room in his in his home band hall, which is inc- I didn't know that was rare or completely unheard of. Um, he was I think he would have been a great engineer as well. But um, it was just really interesting to in a small town be able to delve into every possible realm of education. You know, I took Latin ahead of school, even though they didn't offer it. I was in the physics club. I was you know just every possible thing. A tennis team missed every Friday in the spring for tournaments. I mean. That kind of thing in a small town is just a, it's a goldmine for exploration. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was funny because I was visiting Texas A&M to give a talk at, at um, you know, one of my brother-in-law's friend's classes, and I hadn't been back to College Station in 25 years. And his wife said, what is the thing that you think is, what was your favorite thing about living here? And I said, you couldn't have picked a better place to raise kids because the schools here are phenomenal. And I think that uh, this place gets really missed. Uh, it's unfairly uh, the perception of of Texas being this like you know haven of rednecks is totally unfair. Uh, I said you'd be shocked at how amazing the schools are here, and and to me, I remember what a contrast it was to come from these Texas music programs to to here, which I, I want to ask you about. But uh, there's one other thing that I didn't want to let go, and you mentioned that you were an only child, uh, and that to me is always fascinating as somebody who's grown up with siblings. What is that dynamic like when it comes to your relationships and your friendships and, and you know, how does that play out you know, in adult life? Because I, I think in my mind, I've seen only children sort of turn out in one of two ways. Their friends are like their brothers and sisters or the, the, the polar opposite. Like I can spot friends of mine who are only children because they are selfish in really small ways like, and they're completely unaware. It's not that they're awful people, but the world kind of centers around them. It's like, you're late. It's like, yeah. Of course you're late and it doesn't matter to them, you know? No, I, I think I've gone the opposite direction. I mean, def- I've been married almost 30 years. And so my husband's taught me to share, I would say, but I will say that um, I'm the kind of person that everyone's a friend I haven't met yet. And I put that everywhere and I am a huge hugger and I just connection is my drug. And so I look at the world as my potential friend group and I just, that's what I love. And I, that's why music to me is so interesting. It's just a way to connect without having to explain yourself. And um, so I don't know, as an only child, it was great because I did have the focus I needed to, from my parents to be able to explore all the variety that I did, which frankly, again, adds to the possibility of creation um, and creating something unique. But at the same time, absolutely. You know, I don't have a problem standing out in a crowd or, or giving my opinion. I think I'm much more gentle about it now and more inclusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but no, I, I think that you, you're right. You could go one of two ways. And I, I'm hoping, I mean, you, sh- you should interview other people instead of me ask that question. You should ask, you should ask all the team that works at Roco and my husband and, you know, my, my therapist. I don't know. <laughs> you can ask whoever you want. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually have always wanted to do an interview where I told somebody's story through, uh, you know, the lens of the people that they knew. Uh, you know, it made their story just a small part of it. I like that. Um, so, uh, you know, we were joking earlier that, you know, people, uh, when I was growing up would say that, you know, if you wanted to play the oboe, you had to be the person who was the smartest kid in school. Otherwise the band director would say, no, you can't play the oboe because it's so damn hard. And, uh, so one, I wonder what you had to say about that. And two, um, what is it about Texas that, other than football, that leads to this because, I mean, the contrast that I saw between Texas and California was so dramatic that by the time I left Texas, I was in love with music. By the time I graduated high school here in California, I couldn't stand it um, to the point where my band director 
like he made me hate being in band. Uh, and I was, you know, and, and I found that to be such a disappointment because it was this thing that had meant so much to me for so long. Sure. I mean, obviously the funding, which it does, does stem from the football programs, but at the same time, it creates a drive for quality people to come because they have pay, they pay and they're, they're fun. So, I mean, everything does stem from money and yeah. being able to afford something, which there's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of, of that. That's a good thing that there's economy driving it. Um, but I will say that if, you know, it attracts the people who are the most driven and that I, that's how I see it. That in Michigan, you know, have some seriously powerful band programs. Now you're, you said band over and over again and not orchestra, which I find interesting too, because orchestra on the East coast is different than band, right? Yeah. It's a whole different conundrum. But mm-hmm. you, you were saying about picking the oboe. I mean, my, my dad, my mom just wanted me to play something different. And my dad was, I, you know, I'd been in the band hall since I was two years old. So I just wanted a challenge as far mm-hmm. as that goes. And my parents kind of knew is a small town that I had to get lessons. So they would drive me to Dallas once every two weeks to get lessons. And so that was the added benefit. I think with the oboe, you have to be right and left brained. You have to be able to know how to make reeds, which is a whole physics thing. Mm. And then you have to be able to do the um, the music part of it. So you've got to be both brained to be able to to be successful without number one hating to practice or number two hating to make reeds. And so I love making reeds. It's fun, and then I like to play too. So I, I kind of look at everything in life as a um, vicious prioritization. That's what I always say. Ruthless prioritization where when you practice, you just isolate, get it done. It's like a video game. You just, you know, annihilate the things that aren't working and same in oboe. It's, it's um, kind of a fluidity of, of thought. And I, I reference video games all the time. Cause I know I would be such a, I'm a dork already, but I would be <laughs> geeking out with all this Assassin's Creed stuff. I mean, if I had more time, that's what I would be doing. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a big D&D girl back in the day and um, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, for Oboe, you're sunny. It's, it's not necessarily the high grade smart people. It's the people who can prioritize ruthlessly that really helps um, and want a challenge. People who mm. don't mind sounding like a duck for 20 years before you <laughs> sound like a prettier duck. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I knew even playing the tuba, my band director was like, oh, he's like, with this, you have a shot at making all state band. I knew that as a trumpet player, I'm like, oh, I'm up against so many damn people. And I, I remember that very distinctly about the oboe. It's like, and flute, and flute. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you have one in every band. And it was just like, wow, but we'll get to the flip side of that, which is, oh, making a career out of this is also one in every band or one in every orchestra. So the reason I, you know, you, I, you'd said that I didn't mention orchestra, um, Part of it, we, there were, orchestras were not prevalent in uh, California when I got to high school. My sister went to uh, my Crosstown High School where they did have an orchestra, but you just didn't see them. We didn't have this sort of hotbed of music um, right, right. that you have in Texas. So you mentioned funding being part of it. Uh, you know, football, obviously, that comes with music as well. But to me, sometimes I joke that there's nothing else to do in Texas, like other than football and music, especially in a small Mm -hmm. town. But I think there is something about the culture, too, that I saw as fundamentally different because one is, you know, making it mandatory at such an early age. Like, I think it was from sixth, seventh, eighth grade on. And so, you know, I think that it it was one of those things that I, I found to be such a contrast. And, you know, in addition to funding and football, like what else do you think it is that leads to that culture? Uh, is it is it just because of, of the fact that there isn't anything else to do in these small Texas towns? <laughs> no, I think 
that it's also, I mean, what I've seen is the fact that you can have it every day. I mean, you have athletics every day and you have to build those skills. And I, I, again, I've seen in private schools here in Houston where they'll do music, but it's every fourth day or something like that. It's like a dabbler experience as opposed to a building skills experience. And um, that's where I think the culture comes from in a small town, again, is that that striving for excellence. Um, you're right. I mean, while there isn't a lot to do, you are able to do everything. Again, that's what I was saying. I mean, there's no way you could be on a varsity tennis team and drum major of the band and, you know, part of the Latin club and all the things that, that I did and also be in the pageant world. I mean, that's just embarrassing, but it's true. And, um, and just you do all those things and be a dabbler, but in a much deeper way. And I just think you have a huge palette to draw from, from a small town mm-hmm. um, to go into a big town because you're a big fish in a small town and you can drown if you go into a bigger place, like, you know, some you Juilliard, whatever, yeah. but you can also be like, Hey, you're just, you're people. Let's be people. And, everything comes back to being human first, which is my whole circle of life has come to that constant mantra Mm. of be human first. And I think in a small town, you, you have to be, everyone knows you also, you also know kind of people, you know, them in a way that you don't in this bigger town. I barely know my neighbors around me in Houston and it's actually a very friendly town, Mm -hmm. but in a small town, you know, that, you know, that guy over there, no one should go near him, (laughs) you know, (laughs) You just have a sense of community that you don't have. And there's negatives to that too, but I just, it was a huge leaping ground for me. And I, I really am thrilled that I got to grow up in a small town. So one question I have for you, and this is from my own experience, is what are race relations like in a town like that? Because, you know, I was always stunned that, it, you know, there was people who were blatantly racist, not against me. I was really lucky, but I had friends who whose parents were upper middle class, super educated and openly racist, like some of the things they said in front of me, I would never repeat on the air because they were that awful. Uh, and I, I wonder about that because, you know, as an Indian immigrant in a small Texas town, like I remember we were the only Indians there. We were like this just weird, we, we were unexplainable to most people. <laughs> I hope we're all unexplainable. No one should be able to define <laughs> us all, right? Let's say that. I think because my parents were teachers and my mom was actually elementary music teacher before high school uh, choir. So she not only saw these kids as kindergartners, but all the way through past high school. And I think, how do I say this? Seeing a through line of a person's life changes your perspective. I would say individually. Yes. You know what what struck me more though? I mean, we definitely had, I mean, probably in my whole high school, you know, my my grade had about a hundred and we may have had 15, maybe 15 African-Americans, which is, you know, pretty for, for that area, pretty big amount, but we were all really close to each other. I mean, that was what was so strange. I had a weirder thing with two white girls who were twins and I was best friends with one of them. And that was a whole like psychological study there. Right. Um, so, it was, so I see, I see it as seeing my mom kind of just knowing people and I guess not othering people, which is the mm. word that we use now, yeah. not othering. And so I think when it's such a small town, there wasn't a way to other um, there was all about we're all together and and that's pride and that school spirit. If you have 5,000 in your school, there's no way to have a connectivity there. Um, I've, I found more, frankly, sexual assault and really bad um, girl-boy relationship stuff in high school than, than race. Mm. So that not from my personal perspective, but for other things. So that when I reflect back on it, I mean, I'm actually still pretty darn close to um, 
a bunch of my high school friends, and that includes all races. We didn't, I don't remember having, um, we, we had some, some Asians come in, which was really, really interesting, especially some, um, students who are foreign exchange, who had a lot of interesting dialogue with my mom because they were in choir and, and their diction. And it was a really great, she turned it into an amazing discussion point, but yeah. Am I answering your question? Yeah, yeah, I'm, no, no, absolutely. I'm ruminating on it. No, 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 I, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why I asked the question. I didn't think there'd be yeah. some sort of like straight answer to, to this. Oh. Um, it's like I said, it's interesting, but uh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that there's this other sort of, you know, thread that goes on of like sexual assault and all these other things. And it makes me wonder, you know, are, are these high school football players in towns like this, just God, like the way they're made out to be on Friday night lights, <laughs> like, do they get to go everywhere and, you know, get free food everywhere? Like, are they immune to a lot of the things that would get like 90% of people in trouble just because of who they are? You know, I think there's a lot of after school specials. I think they should bring those back, even though, no, you know, it needs to be on Netflix. But I really do. I wish we'd bring those back. I think there's all stereotypes for that. Um, you know, I every boy I knew was on the football team. I mean, everyone did it. It wasn't like a here's the football stars. Here's the band star. I'm I'm, I'm probably being Pollyanna about this a little bit, but I knew every everyone I was friends with was on the football team and there were a huge gradation between the ones that were stars and the ones that weren't. And, you know, we won, we won state like football, but we also won honor band. <laughs> it's all state, but I, you know, yes, of course that happens. It still happens. And, you know, look what we do. We venerate everyone on, on social media for all their skills that may or may not be worthwhile. I, I don't want to just go wax eloquent about this, but yeah. I'm sure, yes, it happens. And yes, they can probably get by, but it's not near that stuff. Not even, at least what I grew up with. Yeah. So I love that you brought up skill in social media, which I think makes a perfect segue to really spend the rest of our time talking about what I want to talk about. Um, you know, I I know from having like I said, grown up in a similar environment, the discipline that comes with getting good at something. And I, I wonder if you could, um, you know, talk us through sort of the evolution of your craft as an oboist. Like, what are the early habits that were instilled that you have maintained today? Like, how does, how do you evolve as a musician, somebody who is in high school, who has the habits, practice and discipline? And how does that evolve as you become somebody who does this for a living and does it professionally and starts to perform at the highest levels in places like Juilliard? Hmm. I think you have to acquire the skills that are very um, baseline acceptable for performance. Um, at some level, you have to have mastered that. And instead of trying to practice to make things right, I always say I practice to get rid of limitations to say exactly what I want to say soul to soul. So I speak about that a lot where it's a language. Music is not a, with Rocco, we don't do a lot of white dead male concerts. <laughs> um, we, we, do, we do a lot of living composers and people in dialogue. Um, and we are in dialogue with music and no, nobody really talks about that in performance that they market the music that's in between people as opposed to the people that are receiving and sending it. And um, anyway, that's a whole nother tangent, but I, what I'm, well, the reason I bring that up is because if you're practicing to get things right, then, you know, what reward and award are you seeking? Are you still in high school? Right. But when you kind of get to that point where you get a little past yourself, and I don't mean you've acquired all your skills. I just mean that you kind of get over yourself a little and you realize that practicing is more to, um, again, asteroids, get rid of the alien ships, 
in your perform in your practice and be able to just kind of let go on stage. Um, I will say that I got over myself when we were, in, my husband and I went to France for his MBA. He got it at INSEAD in Fontainebleau. And I did some home concerts there that I hadn't done a lot of here. And I played in these tiny rooms with the carpet and miserable, miserable with people's, you know, a foot away from me. And I realized they don't care what I look like. They don't really care how hard it is to do. They just want to hear the music. And again, you just get over it. Um, so I guess that's kind of the place that you can get to, but you do have to put in the time. I remember going to Juilliard and being in a dance studio up against the, the mirror, watching the minuscule movements of my fingers and starting over with scales at, you know, quarter note equals 60 to really isolate and get rid of all these weird things that could happen. And then if you really take that time and then after school, you're in scale work and you're in, you know, in audition mode. At some point, it's not like you don't practice like that anymore. It's just that you can practice more efficiently, I guess. And especially when you do what I do, which is I raise money pretty much all the time. I mean, don't don't think I'm not going to ask you after we're done with this to support Roco. But I'm just saying that for what I do now, it's about marketing. It's about people in elevators being trapped. So I ask them for money. It's about <laughs> that kind of stuff. So again, practicing is not in and of itself its own end. It's um, a part of the everyday flux of what has to happen to be on stage. Mm. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, you know, something you mentioned earlier is this idea of you know being a big fish in a small pond to, and then going and being a small fish in a big pond. Uh, and it, what came to my mind was, uh, you know, so I I got into the USC School of Music and Indian parents, as you might have imagined, they were like, "There's no way, you know, you're not going to be a music major." And my dad made a pretty convincing case. He's like, "Like, uh, uh, you know, there's only one tuba in every major orchestra, so I wouldn't be looking at job boards. I'd be looking at obituaries every day." waiting for it's somebody true. to die. Literally, that's what I, I always I, wonder. I like, say that all the time. I'm like, do professional tuba players literally check the obituaries every morning to see who died in, in some symphony? Because that seems like the only way you would find that job. Uh, I'm just shocked there hasn't been like a, a whole underground report of health of certain professionals. <laughs> well, it, it, it you know, it, that, that thing always struck me. And it's not the most versatile instrument either. Uh, but, you know, you go from Texas to Juilliard and I think that the, anybody who has pursued a career in music or per, career in the arts, and I can say this as an author as well, it's hard. We know that the odds are stacked against us. And I remember I wrote a piece on our blog about how to talk to your kids about pursuing a career in the arts. Some people loved it. One woman actually hated it because she thought I uh, <laughs> made the post incredibly discouraging. And I said, you know what? I don't think anybody should sugarcoat the reality of what people are getting themselves into should they choose to do this. So... I wonder, one, can you talk about that transition from being the big fish in a small pond to, you know, going into this environment where you're the small fish in a big pond, but then also managing your psychology through what is inevitably an uncertain career in which nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible? Right. So those well asked, by the way, <laughs> well, well verbalized there. Um, so at Juilliard, I had a trio. I started to do gigs and we did so many crazy, like I have so many amazing gig stories. I did a mafia wedding in Long Island. I did a Buddhist monastery performance to welcome a man back into the speaking world after his vow of silence. I mean, I've done these insane gigs. And, um, and I say that to say, while I was at Juilliard, I was always really interested in the business side of it. And thus, I'm, I mean, I, I would be such a good real estate person. It would be so fun to sell things, but Anywho, um, so there I was already kind of getting in the idea of, of, of marketing what I was doing, obviously in background music, not necessarily in performance or starting a group for performance. But so that was there. And I knew I could find my footing in that realm. Um, and then, you know, I won the Hinchero competition with three other people. We got to do this really cool performance in Evian. And so once you're done with that kind of thing, you're right. You go into this world of waiting for someone to die. I mean, truly and honestly, that's what it is. And you're just practicing the same music over and 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 over. And to me, it doesn't even seem like life, right? But you're not thinking about that. 
And so I was in a bunch of different finals and I was doing okay. I was professor here at University of Houston and on and on. But then my husband got this idea, opportunity to go to France. Well, my teachers told me not to go, that I would ruin my life. And I don't know anyone that says that about moving to France, but they did. And I sort of got it that if you go over there, the, the playing style is so different that you could lose your sense of, of edge of auditions. But I'll tell you what I did find when I moved over there was what music was like there anyway. It was a part of people's lives, it was fabric of their lives. Um, they did it all the time, as much as breathing. Professional amateur, part of their house, part of the culture. And it, it was a different thing, a different animal. So I came back to the States when, we, when he got a job here with a completely different mindset about music. And um, I was already called the gypsy at Juilliard. <laughs> so I already kind of was not going to conform anyway to an orchestra setting, which was interesting. But I was pretty depressed for a while. I mean, there wasn't anything waiting around for me, right? But when I first got back to Houston, I heard this orchestra was forming that had some really cool ideas for marketing, different ideas. This guy did this, you know, Planets at the Planetarium here 15 years before Space Odyssey came out with all that stuff. Um, but anyway, I was a part of that. I was a principal oboe and his personal manager, and I saw kind of it being built from ground up. Fascinating didn't work, but it was fascinating. Two other orchestras I was a part of, Oboist helped them out a little bit in administration. They also came up and went down a little. So I was really gifted with the ability to be in these groups, to see it firsthand. Number one, what not to do, which is more important than to do. And then when, when that all happened, I was kind of, again, like, okay, there's no job. What am I going to do? And my church renovated. St. John the Divine is a Frank Lloyd Wright style building, and it's really beautiful space. And it was truly a Noah moment, like start an orchestra. And I was like, I don't think so. And he's like, yeah, you will. So <laughs> I started thinking about people that were, had gotten to the point I did, which is getting past themselves. They could smile on stage instead of looking like they'd rather take a bullet, which a lot of <laughs> classical players look like. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so not, and then, and then they don't look at the word entertainment as a dirty word, which some people do in classical music. They don't look at, um, you know, they don't, have, they don't think that cash and making money is, is evil. And, Anyway, just gathering these people, half of whom are from all over the world, who come together with a dynamic way. And, and now we're in our 15th season. I mean, that was kind of the big leap. But I had years and years in the desert of like, what am I going to do with my life? And um, it, it's been exciting to just start something with all that baggage. I mean, the good baggage to declare. Yeah, yeah I think that, you know, to me, the most challenging part of of this is not necessarily the work itself, but like dealing with your mindset and what's going on inside of your head, uh, which makes me wonder, did you have friends who quit like post Juilliard? who was like, okay, that's it. It's just not meant to be. Of course, there are no jobs out there. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's so many. And it's, you know, what I, what I've actually been on a weird kick about too is, you know, if you're on the board and you're helping conservatory students and you're on helping raise money for schools, that's great. But you also need to, in tandem, be on a professional board to say, here, I'm also supporting the, the line that's afterward. You know, um, I mean, these people auditioning and, and graduating thousands and thousands with, you know, maybe three jobs open a year. That's just not tenable in any field. Um, so I do think, too, that it's okay to be discouraging. It's okay to say those stats because if it's, if it just takes me saying to you, there's only three openings a year for oboe and you quit, you weren't going to make it anyway. Yeah. Let's just be honest. You know, you got to have some grit. Uh-huh. Grit is what was that lady that said that that's the Ted talk. Uh, and grit is the reason people succeed. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best. It's true. You got to have grit. 
Well, it's funny because Matt Damon, uh, in this interview he did with Sam Jones uh, on one of my favorite podcasts called Off Camera, he said, if I can, you know, when people come to uh, ask him about being an actor, he tells the same thing. And he says, if I can talk you out of this in one conversation, you're not cut out for it. Exactly. You know, I've kept every rejection letter I've ever had. I've kept every, every single one. I like to look at it every now and then. <laughs> Even when I was depressed, I would look at that. I don't know. It, it, and I'm the kind of person, you know, for all, for all state, right? You audition for region, right? I'm the kind of person that would sit outside yep. people's audition that. room and listen for their mistakes, you know, which, yeah, that's great, you know? And then I definitely got to a point after we came back from France where, you know why I think I was not successful? Even I did get into finals for a number of jobs, but the reason I, I don't do well behind a screen I can't connect with anyone. And that truly, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's my drug. Uh-huh. I had a musician. We don't have a lot of subs, but I had, we had a, a transition with a flutist. My best friends, they had a baby anyway, long story, but we had another flutist come in and she said, and she's our flutist now, but she said that she's so used to being in an orchestra and having to be in a bubble because there's so much strife and so many problems with, you know, emotional problems or something and just felt like she couldn't connect that she was in a bubble. And she felt like I kept leaning over and going, pop, <laughs> wake up, connect, come on. Yeah. And so I think that's where it's hard with auditions because you, you have to be clinical and I am in no shape or form a human that's clinical. You, so. It's so funny because when you're talking about that uh, here in California, I don't know why they don't do this in high school because I think it does introduce bias into the process. Like they don't put you behind the screen, but I remember that very distinctly. Uh, mm-hmm. The screen, I still to this day remember the name of the kid who beat me for all state band by one year. Uh, I remember the day, and every year on January 13th, I wake up and I'm like, something is off and I don't know why. And then I remember, I'm like, this is the day that I missed all state band by one chair. Uh, you know, and it's funny because not despite being principal two in California, it still never compensated because it's a lot bigger to me. I was like, it's a big deal in Texas here. It didn't mean as much. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that you mentioned that you're also a teacher. Are, are you a parent? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so this, I absolutely have to ask you about, um, what do you, when you think, about, and I don't know how old your kids are, but when you have chosen this path as somebody who's, is a musician, you know, how do you think about, talking to your kids should they choose to go down uh the path of a career in the arts and is music something that you're are you going to be one of those parents who's like insistent that they play an instrument or you're just like okay should you pick up an interest in it so be it if not you know life goes on i've been more of a cobbler's kids have no shoes type parent um (laughs) um, we have a college student and a high school student two boys and um yeah they're again their private school programs did not have band um, or really orchestra. One of them does, but it's not something that you learn like scales and skills and there's no competitions for it. So it's more playing, you know, pop music. Um, so he did, the youngest one did French horn for about a year or two, but really because there wasn't a diligence, a diligence, I guess, in that program compared to, cause he's in this top academic school. That's what's been driven. So he's more into actually started his own company. It's kind of a funny story, um, in, in sales, but my, one in college is um, getting his fluency test in Mandarin. So his music skills came out in Mandarin um, and he's just an amazing speaker. He spent this summer in China. So finding ways that music gift can also be in other areas to me is fine. You know, mm-hmm. as long as, I mean, they've been to every Roko concert there is just because they had to, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, 
it's not their thing. I mean, my eldest has a guitar and he's got a you know song on Spotify with the band and he stuff, you know, he loves slash as do I, I love rock and roll. Um, and you know, my youngest, he loves rap. So he's been in follow Travis Scott forever and all this. So, um, I don't know. I find it weird to force. And I'm, since I'm from band and you know this, well, you don't really start talking about it until fifth or sixth grade anyway. Uh-huh. And when you have to do uh-huh. Suzuki, I'm sorry to all my spring friends, but I find Suzuki a little creepy, but that's just me. <laughs> it's just because i'm not a string player and i'm totally snobby and it's awesome and it's discipline and it's fabulous and everyone should try it but and and now that i know more about it it's great but i when i was growing up in band i thought it was strange yeah well those suzuki kids start at like three or four years old it's like how do you even hold the violin when you're three right and you don't need an oboe that tiny because it would sound ridiculous (laughs) yeah wow but yeah so so that's but no i think it's really fun to see um I just think that they can see that my husband and I both followed our separate passions. I mean, he, he's a saxophonist or it was in high school and it's in the closet and it still stay in the closet, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, he's an oil and gas and that kind of stuff. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, I just, well, it's yeah. funny because people always ask me if I still play it. And I was like, you know what? A tuba costs more than a car and I really need a car a hell of a lot more than I need a tuba. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yep. An oboe too. You can't do it without reeds. So, Yeah. So, so you mentioned also that you teach. Um, so anytime somebody teaches, I always have questions for them. Not, And I don't want to ask you about education because I think music is a, a very unique sort of uh, situation. I don't think in my mind, music is, you know, basically immune to my criticisms of the entire rest of the education system, uh, because I think there's something very special about it. But th- that being said, I think that as a teacher, I wonder what have you learned from your students? Well, I had a studio before I started Roku, a really competitive one, about eight kids who were, most, I had like three all-staters. It was really exciting. And one that I got in, uh, well, he got into Juilliard. I told him not to go as an undergraduate, um, but because it's just, it's more of a graduate student place. But um, yeah, really it, it helps you kind of, again, isolate and test your own theories. But also, mm-hmm. I'm actually not is interesting. I'm so bad at actually knowing if someone's a good player. I'm actually much, much clearer on what their brain's doing. And so I always have taught my kids, my two boys and, and my students to use the oboe to figure out their brain as opposed to going mm-hmm. the other way. Um, you know, yeah. use whatever your skills are to learn how you think. I'm much, much more interested in, okay, that phrase didn't go this way, but why? Let's, let's step back into that a little bit. So again, that helps you truly isolate instead of just repeat repetitive practice. Because I think if you, pra- in my opinion, if you practice more than an hour and a half or so, you've really, you're, you're out of it. You're not doing it. You're yeah. just moving your fingers around and not paying real close attention. So that's part of it. But I dropped my studio just because I, again, this is more than a 24 seven job and we have a team of six full-time team, you know, at Roco, And it's, it's just so, so much. But what I do now is go around and speak at conservatories and colleges about entrepreneurialism and arts and talking about mm. this, not only the starting of your own group, which may not be practical for some people, you've got to be an extrovert or you got to partner with an extrovert. You've got to, but more importantly, the skills that you need to acquire to be in this world that's shifting so dramatically. I talked to them about, you know, remember Dora the Explorer, you go through life, you put stuff in your backpack, you don't know if you need it later. And that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing take a speech course, take mm-hmm. a, a body use course. I mean, I'm not regretting the fact I was in the pageant world because I think it's helpful for being on stage. I, I was a DJ for a radio station. I, I auditioned because I didn't have a job yet and I could pronounce Buxtehuda. You know I mean? <laughs> that's the only reason I got the <laughs> So 
I just, I keep encouraging people in all fields, but especially in the arts to find those skills because arts administration is also a career, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But I would also talk about music. The fact that music has been kind of ripped out of schools is a problem, even in Texas for how much schools have dropped their bands and orchestra programs. And what's really difficult for big orchestras um, and, and big things like opera orchestra and alley that our alley theater here too is that they get tasked with replacing music education and they're supposed to be a performance group. So they bust kids in to hear what they do. There's no relationship created there. So it's even more of an elitist creation, which they don't mean to do. So my point is that that music education in schools is a topic to talk about even as a performer, because yeah, that's, it's not fair for a performing arts group. I'm always constantly saying Roku doesn't do music education. We educate everyone. We, you know, we relight the pilot light in adults. That's what we do. It's not, about kids. So anyway, that, mm-hmm. I know that got, went on a huge tangent on that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think I, I appreciate the tangent because I, I think that, you know, uh, regardless of the art form, you have to take an entrepreneurial approach if you're going to pursue a creative career. It's just not an option. And I think that just based on some of the references you made, we must be close in age. You know, now you have access to resources, to tools, to distribution channels, to things you didn't before. But earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned, uh, social media. And the reason I wanted to ask you about this is because I have a young niece who is showing some really early promise and talent for a career in music. And she has like been obsessing over these people who are getting like millions of views on YouTube or like, you know, on Instagram. And I told her, I said, look, you can't compete with that. The one thing that is a good use of your time is to get really, really, really good because then they'll never stand a chance against you. Uh, And I just, I wonder about how you as somebody who I, I believe predated this whole era, views all of this stuff. <laughs> I talk young. I sound young. Yes, I am young at heart too. Um, yes. I, my parents too. I mean, they've always been, my parents are video game addicts. My parents. Um, yes, I said that. <laughs> so, so I come from that, you know, and my, um, it's really interesting what I find the best thing about social media for our field, and I'll go back to your niece in a second, is that a friend of mine always says, access makes the heart grow fonder. And that's been our approach the whole time. Like, you know, live streaming for free. We have an app you use during our concerts, during pieces to actually read commentary by musicians. Just using technology for connection is what I'm talking about. Now, this idea about I find it really what's difficult is that people put false ideas about themselves out there on, and that's what people think is their reality. I know that that's difficult. And when you don't predate this generation, then you don't have a sense of grounding and self in that regard. You just see what's out there as truth. And that's really difficult. I mean, I love people like the two set violin guys who kind of make fun, make fun of everything. I don't know if you know about them who, um, you know, they, they listen to different things and they'll, they'll do a, a, a competition for sight reading. And so they, they just seem super real to me and funny. Um, I do think you're right. You have to have your head down a little bit to kind of just know who you are authentically. I think the hardest part in, especially I find it in females is there's this huge imposter syndrome and it, it happens in any field, but in ours, especially to have to stand on stage and be authentically who you are. And that's, that's really vulnerable and difficult. And so my huge goal is to invite musicians, even in Roco, who are a lot of, you know, at the top of their field to be vulnerable on stage 
and let people into your experience. You know, if you break your read, let them know in your audience that happened, you know, don't just be all like freaking out, just (laughs) bring them into your experience. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're younger and you're not as confident of who you are, you can't really even articulate it clearly. Then it's impossible to be vulnerable and open and, and display who you are because you're not sure yourself. So I think honestly, working on things that are not the technical side of performance to make it perfect, but again, working on things of, um, I, I would say just layering on yourself of the depth of you spiritually, the depth of you morally, the depth of you relationally. If you can start to have those conversations at a really young age in tandem with the fact you're working hard on your, on your physical stuff, I think you'll not be immune to it, but I think that you'll see it for a clarity that you may not have had before. You, you know, I think that, uh, you know, to me, especially having gone through this and having built this platform entirely online and, and you know, even be having had 10 years at, at doing this, I realized that people are much more interested in attention than they are in the, doing something worthy of an audience's attention. And oh, totally. she, you know, I could give her something to do. She'd get millions of views, but she'd probably be arrested, too. So <laughs> <laughs> just say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. What was your point? <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, and yeah, I mean, that, that is that is absolutely true. Like people, I think, are obsessed with this idea that, oh, yeah, I think the other day I'd, I'd written this entire like sort of rant. It was like a, a series of tweets called how to become successful in your creative career. And I ended it by saying, by the way, just last I checked, I can't buy coffee, groceries or pay rent with hearts, likes or retweets. Um, so for those of you who think this is actually useful, social currency is effectively worthless. Uh, it doesn't produce any real value and it's not an indication that you've produced any value. And, you know, it was just this crazy rant, but it just made me think about that as, as you, would, you would mention that, you know, because, yeah, you can do things to gain attention and, you know, I think we value the wrong thing, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it comes to developing an artistic skill. Well, we can't discount the fact that they used to like to see public hanging. Okay. I mean, come on. We haven't really changed much as a human race. I mean, let's, let's just talk about it that way. You think of the medieval times and what they love to see is people in the stockyards hanging there and throwing fruit at them. Um, you know, I don't think we're any different as, hum- as humans. I think our vehicles are much easier and anonymous. That's the other reason I think it's hard. Um, like I said, if, if you were in town, a small town, and somebody said that to you on the street, what they posted on Facebook, they probably have repercussions, but it's different when it's anonymous and in line. So that's hard too, is that anonymity? Mm. Um, I, I think you're right. I, I, we try to approach our social media, at least with Roco, as, a, as a, a personality, a brand personality. Mm-hmm. To say this is kind of who we are as people. And I mean, I post the wackiest stuff on my own personal stuff, but just... I mean, Roko is me. So, you know, 4,000 of my best friends are on Facebook um, with me, but I don't know. I, I think that it's really hard when you're anonymous and you still don't know who you are. And we know you and I both know tons of adults who are there already still. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I've figured it all out um, at all, but I do say that I'm much more comfortable being very, very vulnerable in myself and welcoming others into that space to just say, Hey, I take you as you are, you know? Yeah. 
Wow. Um, well, this has been really, <laughs> really wonderful. Um, uh-huh. I have so enjoyed chatting with you. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. That they are their that they are their authentic selves, and it's very clear to you that what you're getting from them is what they're giving to you. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, everything that you're up to? Roco.org. R-O-C-O.org. Roco is a professional music ensemble. We flex from one to 40 players from musicians around the world. We live stream for free and we're broadcast nationally. We've done 100 world premieres by the end of this season. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.